0: Welcome back to A Better Brand of Happiness. This is session 19. In today's session, we'll look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. This is a new section in our study of Philippians, new meaning we haven't touched on it yet. And so um, I thought I would take a minute and review at least a few of the steps um, in my Bible study method, since the purpose of this class is both to teach the content of Philippians and to teach you some Bible study skills. You see on the screen, my Bible study method listed there, the eight steps that I go through um, anytime I study a passage of Scripture. The first one is to read the passage in three translations. I won't take time to read it in three translations, but I will read it in one translation. So if you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and follow along as I read verses 19 through 30. Philippians 2, 19 through 30 says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. "'that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. "'I have no one else like him "'who will show genuine concern for your welfare. "'For everyone looks out for their own interests, "'not those of Jesus Christ. "'But you know that Timothy has proved himself "'because as a son with his father, "'he has served with me in the, go- in the work of the gospel.' I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you set to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. This section of Scripture is, as I will try to demonstrate in a moment, um, one separate paragraph of Scripture. It has two clear divisions to it, but uh, it can be taken, and I suggest that it should be taken as one uh, paragraph and studied um, in that way. Um, As I mentioned, um, I think it's helpful to read the Scripture in more than one translation, more than one type of translation, so that you see some of the different um, nuances that are missed based on the translation philosophy you're reading from. There is no perfect English translation. Every translation has to make decisions about clarity um, versus perceived accuracy And um, in those decisions, then, some nuances are lost um, or some of the decisions that are made are sometimes incorrect or they're debatable. And so looking at different translations kind of gives you a sense of some of the decisions that were made. And later on, when you go through um, step five and six, where you have questions and then look for the answers, you can try to decide maybe through reading commentaries or consulting with other people why one translation differs from another. And so we've taken time to read this in one translation, um, but of course, when we're studying it on our own, we would look at more uh, than, than that one. The next step in my Bible study method is to establish the paragraph, establish the paragraph. And um, the point of this part of my Bible study method is to uh, remind us that the, one of the basic, in my opinion, the basic... Um, unit of Bible study should be the paragraph. When people talk about taking Scripture out of context, often they do that because they read a verse or a part of a verse or a couple of verses in exclusion from the larger paragraph around it. And so um, every book, of course, has an argument that, that is woven through the entirety of the book, and each of those paragraphs contribute to the argument in some way. But um, by looking at and studying the Bible a paragraph at a time, we can avoid missing the context and uh, potentially um, misinterpreting Scripture. And so one of the steps I tried to tell you is how do you know when a new paragraph has begun? And I gave you some certain things to look for, and I think we could find those markers here in this paragraph. One of them is uh, actually something you would notice if you had consulted other translations. Verse 19, which I suggest is the first verse in this paragraph, says in our NIV, I hope in the Lord. But in the original language, there's actually the word but. And so the word but, of course, is a conjunction. It's a contrastive conjunction. And um, I think that Paul is using it in this paragraph to signal a new idea. And so the end of the last paragraph, chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, you should be glad and rejoice with me. And then in verse 19, he says, but I hope to, in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Both the word but and the change in topic from talking about um, Paul's potentially being poured out like a drink offering and that they should be glad if this happens because um, their, their uh, faith demonstrates that his work isn't in vain. All that stuff that ended the last paragraph, now the focus shifts. And Paul goes from that to talking about Timothy. And so both the word but and the change in topic from Paul's situation to sending Timothy indicate the beginning of a new paragraph. Now, if we drop down to the end of this paragraph, which I say ends in verse 30, we realize, of course, that in our chapter divisions, um, that a new chapter begins, chapter 3, after verse 30. So chapter 3, verse 1, obviously begins a new paragraph. Now, you understand that these um, chapters and verse divisions were not in the original language, were not in the original writings, nor are they in the um, older manuscripts that we have. These were added hundreds of years after these um, passages were written. And they're very helpful for us because they help us to get on the same page, literally, almost, and and figuratively. When we're looking at Scripture, if I said somewhere in the middle of Philippians, it says this, and and then started reading it to you, you would have a hard time finding it. But because I can give you a chapter and verse, we can all go there together. So those chapter and verse divisions are helpful, but they are not part of the inspired record. And the person who put them in sometimes made mistakes. Sometimes made some curious choices that maybe aren't necessarily mistakes, but, but are odd. And so um, I've encouraged you in looking for establishing the paragraph to not just blindly accept the fact that somebody started a new chapter. Sometimes chapter divisions actually divide a, a passage that could, should be kept in one paragraph. Now, in this case, chapter 3 does, um, in my opinion, begin a new paragraph. And we see that with the word further, my brothers and sisters, which um, again, the the language there signals a change in topic. And so um, I'm quite confident that we can look at uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30 as one paragraph. Someone might argue that it could be two paragraphs. They might say verses 19 through 24 talk about Timothy and Paul and their plans there. And then verses Twenty-five through thirty talk about Epaphroditus and Paul's plan for him. But the truth of the matter is, these all belong together because Paul's talking about his plans going forward, how he's going to use himself and the ministry team that he has to minister to the Philippians. And so that's why I see this as one paragraph of scripture. Next in my um, in my order of steps in studying scripture is state the big idea. State the big idea, and you remember that. Uh, my methodology for uncovering the big idea answers two questions. The first is, what is the implied question in this passage? What is the implied question in this passage? And I answered that, that question by saying this, what was Paul's plan for ministering to the Philippians? That's my way of generalizing what is happening in verses 19 through 30. Paul has turned now from talking about The Philippians and the instructions that he has given them about how they should live in this world as Christians, to talking about what he wants to do for them with the people that he has at his disposal. And so um, I've taken these words about Timothy and Paul's condition, which he talks about in verse 24, and then um, Epaphroditus, and I've kind of generalized it by saying um, this is Paul's ministry plan using the people at his disposal. This is how he's going to go about serving the Philippian believers. And so my implied question then for this passage is, what was Paul's plan for ministering to the Philippians? Of course, to form the big idea, we need an answer to that question. And my way of answering that question is this. His plan was to send Timothy soon, verse 19 shows us that, then come himself soon, verses 23 and 24 discuss that, but to send a Epaphroditus now. That's verses 25 through 30. And so this paragraph of Scripture discusses Paul's immediate plans and breaks down for the the Philippian believers sort of what to expect in their communications and their contact with Paul. And so having um, formulated these questions and these answers, then I put the big idea together. This way, in one statement, one sentence, my big idea would be Paul was planning to send Timothy to Philippi soon and come himself soon too. But he was sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi immediately. All right, this was Paul's ministry plan for the Philippian believers. He was planning to send Timothy to Philippi soon and then hopefully come himself soon. But before any of that, he was going to send Epaphroditus to serve the Philippians. All right, so with those things in mind, the next uh, step in our process would be to break it down sort of phrase by phrase. Um, I'm not going to take time to do that this morning. Instead, I just want to dive into it, and we will go through, phrase by phrase through it. I'm just not going to show you anything visually. Um, and uh, as we go through this, we will um, develop this big idea together. And so the first section or the first subsection in this paragraph is verses 19 through 24. And this is where Paul expresses his desire to send Timothy and to come himself. Verses 19 through 24 is where Paul expressed his desire to send Timothy and then to come himself soon to Philippi. We begin in verse 19 with these words, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. The first phrase there, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon sets forth the topic in a sense, or at least it introduces the topic of this entire paragraph. It starts moving to Paul's ministry plan for the Philippians. And Paul says that it is his desire to send Timothy to them soon in verse 19. Now notice he says in verse 19 that his desire was in the Lord. Verse 19 says, "...I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon." His desire was conditioned with the words, in the Lord. Now, remember, Paul here is setting forth a plan. This is what his intentions are. And like all of our plans, it is reasonable for us to expect that our intentions will happen in reality, at least assuming our intentions are within, you know, are realistic to begin with. But the truth of the matter is, we don't know the future. None of us does. None of us truly knows the future. And because we don't know the future, we can shape the future with our intentions and with our actions. But every one of us encounters um, decisions of other people, changes in weather patterns, unforeseen circumstances that all affect the outcome of our intentions. That is, though we set our minds to do certain things, Things that we could not have imagined, or at least if we imagined them, we hoped that they might not happen, do come to happen. And so we have to deal with those realities. And when Paul says that it was his desire in the Lord, this whole section reminds us that Paul made plans. And we see this throughout the New Testament. Paul is constantly sort of, um, not constantly, but periodically in his letters, he's telling the recipients of his letters what his plans are going forward. And as I've taught in other classes and other contexts, this is something that we should as Christians emulate too. We shouldn't live based on the day and what's going on now. God was someone who set forth intentions as creator and made those, creation, made those intentions happen. God has a plan for redemption of the human race. He has stated that plan repeatedly. And as the human race has developed, we've seen that plan play out in reality, And so, since we are created in the image of God, and we too have the ability to envision a future outcome that is preferred, and make decisions and take actions that could make that preferred outcome come to pass, we image our Creator. We are like God in a good way when we make good plans and seek to make those come about. There is nothing wrong. And there, in fact, is everything right with being someone who is a planner, Someone who takes life and thinks about what it should be like in the future or could be like in the future and makes plans and takes actions accordingly. These are good things. But as Christians, we need to remember that underneath our plan, or I should say on top of our planning, is the sovereignty of God. That while God and His Word, by example, encourages us to make plans, it also tells us that all of our plans happen under the sovereign will of God. And so when Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to do this, he's saying, these are my intentions, but God may have other plans. And it's helpful for us as Christians to remember this and not to get too emotionally committed to the plans that we've made. This is where disappointment comes in. The book of Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And a lot of people get hung up, a lot of Christians get hung up emotionally because they make plans and they set so much hope on those plans that if God disallows a part of it or delays a part of it, if something changes in their circumstances that ruins their initial plan or causes their initial plan to be more difficult than they thought it would be or causes it to happen in reality much later than they'd hoped, a lot of Christians, that bothers them emotionally. Some people actually have anger at God when God intervenes. How dare he to mess with their plans? The scriptures tell us that shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't get too hung up emotionally on the plans that we've made. Because we know that our steps are ordained by the sovereignty of God. That everything we do as Christians and even non-Christians happen under his um, authority. And so, therefore, it's good to make plans, but it's also good to remind ourselves that we're here to serve God, no matter what happens with our plans. I think it's also helpful to remind ourselves not to get too publicly committed to the plans that we made, because again, they happen under the sovereign will of God. Christians say, "If the Lord wills, we will do this; there, we will do this or that." And they're um, quoting there from the Book of James, and. Um, I think it's good to say that at times. I don't think we always need to say it when we talk about the future. But I think it's helpful whenever we um, go public with our plans. That is, when we tell anybody else. It could be our spouse or our family or it could be a larger group of people. I think it's helpful to remind ourselves that these are the plans that we've set, but God might have something else. And that as Christians, we are going to submit to His will. We're going to receive... In a submissive way, whatever the Lord wills for us, even if it messes with or cancels the plans that we've made. And so Paul states his desire to send Timothy, but he does it under the sovereign will of God and an acknowledgement of God's sovereign will. Now, notice the purpose of sending Timothy. In the end of verse 19, he says, "...I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon." that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. What was Paul's purpose in sending Timothy? It was to receive joy when Timothy returned. And so Paul, this, this suggests that whatever, um, whenever Paul did get around to sending Timothy to them, that however long Timothy stayed, his stay there was not intended to be permanent. Instead, it was to go there and fulfill a particular purpose and then to return to Paul with the results of his stay. That's, what, that's all what Paul is saying in verse 19 when he says, that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. Paul wants Timothy to find out what's going on in Philippi and then report back to him. Now, what's going on here? Well, first, it's helpful to note that Paul says he wants to do this soon in verse 19. Soon is an indefinite word, obviously time-wise, but it's one that says it's not something that's way off in the future. It's in the future, and maybe my timing is not totally established yet, but I hope not to wait for too long. All right, and so Paul says he wants to do this soon in verse 19. And again, his purpose is to find out the condition of the Philippians, what's going on in the church at Philippi. Now, Paul expected whatever Timothy had to say to him to be positive. That's why he says in verse 19, so that I may be cheered when I receive news. Paul expects that whatever Timothy brings back to him is going to be encouraging to him. That is that the Philippians are going to have, as I'll argue in a minute, they're going to have taken the instructions and the rebukes in this letter and and taken them well and responded appropriately to what Paul had to say in this letter. The news that Paul wants about them is news about their obedience to the things recorded in this letter. And what is that obedience? Well, it has to do with no longer arguing and complaining in verse 14. Remember verse 14? Do everything without complaining and arguing. This was a problem in the church at Philippi. Paul wrote to address this problem. He was hoping that when Timothy went and came back, he would say, yeah, the complaining, it's pretty much stopped. The arguing has gone away in the church. Paul also wanted them to stop operating, according to verse 3, out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. The people in this church, they had some very proud people in this church, and their pride was bumping up against one another. And they were doing things ostensibly to serve the Lord and to serve each other, but they were doing it in order to get ego gratification, in order to have their their pride um, stoked a little bit. And Paul has been teaching them, no, don't do that. Don't serve the Lord or serve other people. With a view to getting your own ego massaged and pleased, instead he says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Do everything not out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Instead, in verse 5, he said, here in chapter 2, you need to do things with the same mindset that Christ Jesus had. And what was Christ Jesus' mindset? He laid aside his rights, his privileges... To serve us for our good. And so, when Paul says here in verse 19, I hope to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered when I receive news about you, he means something very specific. He is saying, and I'll show you this in a minute or, or at some point in the near future, maybe next week, I don't know, we'll see, see how this goes. But the, um, this letter to Philippi was actually going to be carried by Epaphroditus. All right, that's why he's going to say in verses 25 through 30, I'm sending Epaphroditus now. Epaphroditus's job, in addition to being um, emotionally reconciled again to the Philippians, his job was to deliver this letter. All right, And so Paul's going to finish this letter, he's going to give it to Epaphroditus, he's going to say, go back to home to Philippi immediately and deliver this letter. Now it's his intention, after that letter has arrived, then to send Timothy following him. Timothy will go and he will see if they've obeyed the words of this letter. And then he'll come back to Paul and say, yes, they have obeyed this letter. Things are going better in Philippi. The conflicts and the strife and the self-seeking and the arguing and the complaining, all of that has gone away. And Paul expects that it will go away. All right? And so this is what Paul's intentions are, that Timothy would bring back this good report after they've responded well in repentance to the letter and to the instructions in this letter. Now, in verses 20 through 23, Paul goes on to explain why he wanted Timothy to do this particular task. He goes on to explain why Timothy is uniquely um, capable of doing what Paul wants him to do as described in these verses. And so let's look at verse 20 together. Paul says, I have no one else like him, "...who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon." In these verses, Paul explains why he wants Timothy to go, why Timothy is uniquely capable of serving in this way. And in verses 20 through 21, Paul tells us that Timothy is unique among Paul's immediate helpers. Timothy is a unique man among all all of Paul's immediate helpers. Verse 20 says, I have no one else like him. Now, we need to pause here and think about what Paul is saying. You know, if you've read the New Testament, that. Paul had a number of other helpers that also traveled with him. He had Titus, who has a book of the New Testament named after him. He had uh, Silas, who also traveled with him to these churches that Paul started or that he strengthened. And there were other people as well, not just these men. What exactly is Paul saying then in verse 20 when he says, I have no one else like Timothy who will do these things? Is he saying that Titus is selfish? Is he saying that Silas can't be relied on the way that Timothy can be? No. What Paul is saying is, here in Rome, I'm in prison, and Timothy is the only one who's with me. Remember back in chapter one, the, verse, the, the very opening verses of this letter, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. All right, that doesn't mean that Timothy was the co-author. He's saying, Timothy is the associate I've got with me at the time. In other words, Paul's other associates had probably been dispatched to other churches, other places. They weren't with Paul in Rome where Paul was in prison. Instead, they were out serving the Lord. And while there were other believers in Rome who were no doubt coming to Paul and um, serving his needs, they were not capable of doing the kind of ministry that Timothy was. And so when Paul says here in chapter 2, verse 20, I have no one else like him, he's not to use... A word that the kids use, throwing shade on his other um, co-workers like Titus. All right, he's not casting casting any negative aspersions toward them. He's just saying, with me right now, at this point, Timothy is the best man available to do what I need done. And he goes on in verse 20 to describe why Titus is, or Timothy, I should say, is uniquely capable to do this. And it's because of his own. Um, servant's heart spiritually speaking verse 20 goes on and says who will show genuine concern for your welfare there are plenty of people in the world of course who have a politeness about them where they will ask politely about how someone is doing and you and I in our daily lives do this too Hey, when you um, interact with someone in a store, you know at the grocery store, at the coffee shop, um, at, you know when you're buying gas, if you actually do it the old-fashioned way and go inside and talk to a clerk, you may ask how that person's doing, right? And that's a way of um, assuming you don't know the, the person personally, right? It's just a just a person, saying they're a clerk behind the desk. You don't. You're when you ask how they're doing. You're just being nice okay you're being kind to them it's it's a it's a way of showing courtesy you don't expect them to unload all of their emotional baggage upon you that wouldn't be appropriate for the transaction that you're doing nor would you be in any position to help them probably all right and so if they say well i'm having a terrible time with my teenager you know he ran off in his smoking pot and doing they started to tell you all these problems in their life that would be a tough thing to handle because you're not in any way capable of helping them at all other than providing a listening ear. But the truth of the matter is that even us as Christians who know each other, we tend to do this too. We tend to ask each other how we're doing, but we don't really want the truth, right? We want want a reassurance that everything is okay. And when Paul says about Timothy here, In verse 20, that he will show genuine concern for your welfare, he is saying Timothy cares about you and not just about how you're feeling emotionally, he cares about you spiritually. When Paul says he will genuinely care for your welfare, he is saying he's going to give um, genuine concentration to the spiritual um, obedience and the spiritual work that I've laid out for you to do in this letter. Timothy isn't going to go and, and come back with a sunny report about the Philippians just because that's what Paul wants. When Timothy goes, he's going to ask the hard questions of the people in the church who were acting out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, of the people in the church who were doing things out of with complaining and arguing. He was going to ask very personal, very specific, very spiritual questions about them. And the reason for that is because he cares. He wants them to grow in the Lord, not just give an appearance, a veneer of Christian growth. And so Timothy is uniquely positioned to help in this way because he is a spiritual leader who cares about the spiritual things that are happening in the lives of these people, these believers in Philippi. And this is why Paul says he's the perfect guy, really, to do this, to follow up with this letter, to see how you're doing, because he will ask the hard questions because he genuinely cares. But then Paul goes on and um, goes even further in verse 21 to contrast Timothy to the rest of us, all right, to the rest of the world, at least, that Paul encountered. In verse 21, when he says, "...for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ." And here Paul is stating a truth, a reality, that you and I are hardwired by nature to think about ourselves. To think about our problems, our agendas, our hopes and aspirations, our dreams, our fears, our anxieties, our limitations. And because of that, we get very self-centered by nature. Part of Christian growth and what Paul has been teaching and advocating here at the end of Philippians chapter 1 and most of what we've read in chapter 2 is that growing in Christ means turning from inside and internal focus to being outward focused, to stop thinking so much about yourself and your problems and your interests and your needs and your ambitions and so on, and to start thinking about other people. Paul is saying here that Timothy is contrasting to the rest of the Christian world even, because he has learned how to turn the focus away from himself, and outward toward others, and not just toward others, but notice, he says in verse 21, everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. See, that's ultimately what's going on here. Paul's concerns about the church, about the complaining, the arguing, about the selfish ambition, and all of that are about the people themselves, but it's mostly about the people themselves as being servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Paul cares about their spiritual growth and their walk with God and their service for Jesus Christ because Jesus is building the kingdom. Jesus is saving people and adding them to the church. And those people need to be first evangelized. They first need to be reached with the gospel, but then also they need to be encouraged and taught and rebuked in some cases. And Paul is saying it's not natural for people to think this way, but it is for Timothy. He has learned, he has grown to the point in his life where his primary concern on a daily and an hourly basis is not what's going on with me or even what's going on with you, but what's going on with God's church. How is Jesus Christ being glorified in us? How is he being exalted? How are people being conformed to his image? How is his kingdom being grown and advanced? through me. Paul says Timothy is uniquely positioned to serve you this way because he has reached a level of spiritual maturity that few others find to where he cares about what God is doing in your life. And it's all connected. Every question he asks, every concern Timothy has is all connected to the glory of God and what God is seeking to accomplish in this world through the church. And so this is why Timothy is um, perfect for, to do this job, to check up on the Philippians, because he has learned how to care for the concerns of Jesus Christ. But then in verse 22, Paul goes on to authenticate Timothy as a servant. He goes on to say, not only does he have this, um, this natural ability, not it's not a natural ability, it's a supernatural ability, it's a spiritual ability. He's reached a place in his life where he has grown to the point where he cares about people and he does the Lord's work. But he goes on in verse 22 to to describe how Paul knows this and where Timothy got this from. Verse 22 says this, But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Here Paul is seeking to give some authenticity to Timothy. He's giving some credibility to him. Now, the Philippians know Timothy already. They're familiar with him as a person. They're familiar with his work. They've been personally acquainted, and Timothy has done ministry with Paul there. But Paul wants to remind the Philippians that Timothy is not just some new hire that he found on Craigslist, you know, and enabled uh, and and just plugged in to do some grunt work for him. He's not just like a new, um, you know, like a new secretary or a temp worker who's been brought in to do some some grunt work that Paul doesn't want to do, he says, no, Timothy got to where he is, to where I trust him to do this, and where he does it almost in a sense naturally because of the outgrowth of his spiritual life, because he's been my apprentice. That's the language that Paul is using in verse 22, when he says, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Remember, in the days in which Paul lived, most people did for a living what their dad did for a living. Most guys did. That is, most people made a living doing a particular type of work, doing a particular trade. And when you had a son or multiple sons, it was your job as a father as soon as they were old enough for them to learn from you how to do that trade effectively. It was the job of the father to teach his son what that looks like and what it means to be effective at that trade. Paul has always or has often referred to Timothy as his true son in the faith, and some have speculated that this means that Timothy um, came to Christ directly through Paul's ministry. And it might mean that. That might be exactly what Paul is saying. I'm not sure that that's what he's saying, but, it, but it's, not, it's not wholly wrong. It's not, I'm not saying it's, you know, give that up if that's what you think. It could be correct. I think Paul is emphasizing, though, this sort of apprentice mentality. That Paul is, or Timothy is Paul's son in the faith because Paul has overseen the growth and discipleship of Timothy. Timothy began traveling with Paul early on in Timothy's life as an adult. And over time he has been with Paul as he's gone from one church to another. As Paul has suffered imprisonments and beatings and all of the problems that went along with his ministry for the gospel, Timothy was with him for many of these things. And and Paul has sent Timothy out to do things like this before. And so when Timothy comes to the Philippians, Paul is telling the Philippians, you had better receive him with the kind of of, uh, sincerity and with the kind of uh, honor, really, that you would reserved for me because in a sense he has apprenticed at my side. He is capable and I have witnessed his work and I know that he is capable of doing what I am sending him to do because he's learned everything he knows about ministry from me and I've seen him do it and I know he's capable. And so in verse 22 then he gives this, these authenticating words about Timothy and why Paul has the confidence in him. Verses 23 and 24 conclude this part of this paragraph. And Paul says there, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Paul finishes here declaring his intentions, both for Timothy and for himself. He gives us a little bit more insight on the timing of the things he intends to do with Timothy. In verse 23, he says, I hope therefore to send him soon. And while the word soon does indicate sometime in the immediate time horizon, it also indicates not yet, because he's going to say in the next section of our paragraph, verse 25, is I'm sending Epaphroditus now, all right? And so while he says, yes, I'm going to send Timothy soon, the word soon indicates not right away, though, okay? And Paul has explained why Again, because he wants to give the Philippians time to read his letter when Epaphroditus brings it, to digest what it's saying, to change their behavior, and then Timothy can come and assess how they've done. That's the purpose. And verse 23 is sort of wrapping that up. He's saying, I hope to send him soon, but notice he says, as soon as I see how things go with me. This refers to, again, Paul's impending trial in Rome. You'll remember that Paul was arrested, and he he appealed to Rome for his case, and so he was sent to Rome, and now he's in prison waiting for that audience with Caesar. And his expectation, as we've seen throughout this letter previously, is that he will be released, that his appeal will be granted, and that he will be released from prison. But Paul says, I'm going to keep Timothy with me here until that happens, until I find out that I'm getting released. And then after that happens, after I have my trial, after I am released or, or not, then I'll send Timothy to you. And so the reason for Timothy's delays and not coming immediately are, one, he wants to give the Philippian church time to put into practice what he's teaching them in this letter. And two, he wants the resolution of his case to be settled before he sends Timothy anywhere. And then Paul concludes in verse 24 by saying, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He's saying this, I'm going to send Epaphroditus first as we'll come to in the next uh, session, apparently, because we're almost out of time in this one. But he says, I'm going to send Epaphroditus right away. I'm going to follow him up with Timothy, and Timothy is going to come and assess things and report back to me. But he says, my ultimate hope is that I myself will come to you soon. And again, Paul doesn't know what his future holds. He doesn't know if crucif- or, or um, uh, execution is next for him or if a release is coming. And if he is released, is Philippi really the first place he needs to go as his ministry continues? Or should he go somewhere else and then get to Philippi eventually? Paul is not ready to say at this point what his itinerary should be when he is released. But he communicates to the Philippians that he thinks he will be released. That's why he says in verse 24, I'm confident in the Lord. He believes it's God's will for him to be released from prison and that some, at some point in the future, he will return to Philippi and he will assess the condition of the Philippian believers himself. This is his expectation that he would come to Philippi soon. Now, as we think about um, these words and think about this, ses- this um, section of Scripture, this presents somewhat of a challenge to us to apply to ourselves. We read a section like this where Paul just lays out his intention to send people different places and we think, okay, that's fine, but what does this mean for me? And uh, perhaps I'll go into this a little bit more in the next session because I haven't really walked you through how I do the process of application. So maybe this would be an appropriate place um, to do it in the, next, in the next session. But what we um, can take away from this are the, the example provided by the words that Paul gives. And there's two fundamental examples that this section or this section of Scripture gives to us that we can put into practice in our own lives as Christians. One is to be purposeful in the way that we live. That is, to think about the future and what we want to accomplish and to create plans accordingly, but to do them under the condition of the will of God. And I've already talked about that plenty. But as Christians, we can emulate the example of Paul by hoping to do certain things, but putting that hope under the sovereign will of the Lord. The second thing that we can emulate here is the example of Timothy. And I think this is why Paul talks about Timothy first. Remember that Paul has been telling the Philippians, especially here in chapter 2, to stop interacting with each other in such selfish ways, to stop complaining and arguing, to stop being motivated by selfish ambition and vain conceit, and instead to learn to become a servant. And he's held up Jesus as the ultimate example of a servant. In Philippians 2.10, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who put, himself, or who put us ahead of himself. Now Timothy stands as yet another example of someone. He's saying, yes, we should all emulate Jesus, but if you want a more concrete example for someone that you know personally and someone that you can watch, look at Timothy. He's the kind of guy who embodies the kind of selflessness and service and ministry that every Christian should have. The core um, instruction then for us is not a command, It's a statement of observation, one that we should consider in our own lives and do the opposite of. It's right there in verse 21, for everyone looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. The question we should have as Christians is, is that true of us? If people watch the way that we live, would they say, he's only out for his own interests? Or would they say, here's a person who actually cares about my spiritual life or uses his time to do the work of God's kingdom because he cares about the interests of Jesus Christ. Paul has been teaching that these ways of being unselfish in the way that we live is a better brand of happiness. That instead of allowing our happiness in life to be driven by our own selfish ambition and by our own um, purposes in life, instead if we replace our purposes with God's, if we see ourselves not as the heroes in our story struggling to reach some goal or conclusion, but instead if we see ourselves as servants, as supporting characters in God's story, and make it our mission in life to, to advance God's interests in this world. Paul says, not only will, be, will we be um, showing the fruit of spiritual maturity in our own life. But we'll actually get joy in the process. We'll get this better brand of happiness, true joy, because we'll be connected with a purpose that lasts forever, God's purpose. And so this is a better brand of happiness, to learn how to put the interests of Jesus Christ ahead of our own.